0: Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. With the annual American Society for Virology meeting coming up in less than one week, we are talking with students and postdoctoral researchers
1: who will be attending the meeting.
0: Uh, Thanks for talking with us today. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi. um, Yeah, thank you for letting me share some of my story with you. Um, my name is Ketki. I am an associate research scientist at Emory University. Uh, I currently work with Anis Lowen's lab uh, and I have been a postdoc with her for the past four years before I sort of uh, graduated to being a research scientist. Um, our work primarily focuses on influenza reassortment um, and host virus interactions. That's our primary focus. Uh, with, with the COVID pandemic, as with a lot of other labs, uh, we sort of also added working on coronaviruses. And so part of my work uh, has also been over the last year and a half working on um, SARS-CoV-2 transmission in the hamster model. So we've been doing a lot of work with that as well. Um, my area of research focuses on influenza reassortment in natural hosts, uh, the potential and the efficacy of reassortment in different animal models, um, as well as I've developed a side project, which is sort of my, um, it's, a slight, it's a slightly different project um, from what Anis normally does in the lab, um, which is working on novel methods of cell to cell spread of influenza infection that does not rely on conventional virion production. Uh, and we've recently, uh, uh we're publishing that, uh, soon. So, um, it's sort of this novel mechanism of virus host interactions, uh, which okay. I'm very excited
0: about. Yeah. Cool. So before we get into the details of your research, can you just tell us a little bit about how did you first become interested in science and, uh, virology, I guess?
1: So when I was growing up, uh, actually, and I still am, uh, I was a history nerd and I wanted to be an archaeologist for the longest time. Uh, The Mummy still remains my favorite movie of all time. Um, And uh, so that was where I was going initially, uh, but that's not a very easy profession to get into. I grew up in India and uh, getting into archaeology is sort of like this very strange profession. But once I got into high school, um, I've always been a very curious person. I love museums, I love reading. And so uh, in high school, sort of my interest in biology developed mostly because I had excellent teachers. I think having a great teacher is the best thing you can have, especially early on in developing passion for something. And my high school biology teacher still remains one of the best teachers I've ever had. And she sort of uh, brought out this love for biology in me. And I realized that that's something I could really do. And I, it happens to be that I'm good at it. And I love doing it. So it, it's sort of uh, one of those things. And I think uh, that sort of started my love for biology in general. I got into virology... Uh, in once I was in college, I think my interest in virology developed uh, mostly because I was interested a lot in cell biology. That still remains one of my favorite aspects of biology and um, viruses. I, I, I believe um, I, I forget who said this, but I think one, one of the very famous quotes is that viruses are the best cell biologists. And we learned so much, and that's sort of my entry into into virology. And I just fell in love with viruses. They are fascinating entities, and it's it's um, it's that's how I got into virology. And I've been I've been into viruses since um, my master's was on dengue. My PhD was on HPV. My postdoc has been in influenza. So sort of explored a lot of different aspects. Um, that, that, yeah, so that, that's basically how I got into it.
0: And can you d- tell us a little bit, so yeah, that's actually um, somewhat unusual to have such a tour of virology. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you uh, chose those particular institutions and then those particular labs at your master's, your PhD, and your postdoc? So mm-hmm. how, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, so um, when I when I got into my master's program, uh, I did my master's at the National Institute of Virology in India, and it is the premier sort of virology institute in, 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 in India. And that's where all the, the I think the, it's analogous to the CDC here. So that's sort of uh, it come, where it comes from. But the focus is only virology. It's only viruses. And they run a master's program for, you get a master's in virology. And because I got interested in virology in, my, in, in college, um I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew that that's where I wanted to go. And they are very focused. The program is very focused on viruses. And as part of your desert, dissertation, you get to choose a lab, like to do your project. And for me, I was interested in learning a more, um, high, like a higher skill set. So the lab I chose was focused on electron microscopy, tomography, 3D imaging, that sort of thing. I've always been interested in microscopy, and their sort of virus of focus was dengue. So that's how I got into dengue virology um, because I was interested in the technique, so more than the virus per se. But then I like I really fell into the virus. Um, so that's how I, I sort of did work on dengue um, during grad school. I think. Uh, I, I I did my grad school at ICGB uh, in Italy and that is sort of a United Nations sort of program for member countries basically focused on diseases of, or, or issues that affect the developing world more. That's their focus. So a lot of tropical diseases, stuff like that. And you basically have to write up a proposal on what you would like to work. You choose a lab. It's not like the US system where you rotate. Um, and there, I think I chose, HPV became sort of like, again, it sort of became a uh, sort of secondary choice. It The choice was more on the kind of work we were doing. Um, I love protein biochemistry. I love proteins, again, the cell biology aspect. And that sort of became how I got into HPV. Uh, and living in Italy was one. It was a great experience. I I, I highly recommend doing something in Europe. It, it was a fantastic experience. Um, but that helped me sort of develop my skill set on the more bench uh, sort of protein biology part of it. And then when I I, knew, I always knew I wanted to get into um, a little more of. I I wanted to develop my repertoire into two aspects of more of the academic sort of like bench basic virology of cells and virus-host interactions and that sort of thing. But I also wanted to learn a little more and about more of the public health aspect of it to try to get something that would actually be useful. Uh, And so influenza sort of became this, I, I actually... It came about because I went to a conference in 2014, just before I finished grad school. And I I sort of, while looking through the posters, one of the posters, they caught my eye. And then it sort of, that's how it started. And uh, so I joined Kanta Subaraj's lab at NIH because that would have, that was something new. I'd never done anything with vaccines before. I'd never done anything influenza or animal models before and so that was new to me and I, I was really interested and then, uh, then I moved to an East Lowen's lab lab uh, to learn about reassortment more of the molecular biology of it and that sort of thing uh, so that's how it transitioned f- to the influenza field uh, and currently I'm sort of trying to find a good blend of both of them to find the more homogeneous mixture, let's say, of the public health side of it.
0: So why don't you tell us a little bit then about the work that you have been doing recently?
1: So recently, uh, there I've been basically involved in three big uh, things. Uh, one, like I mentioned, uh, we've been working on the hamster model for SARS-CoV-2 transmission uh and that was because we had to set up the whole lab because that, and that i think was a very great learning experience in how to set up a new model in a lab that doesn't do it and uh, we had to learn from scratch everything how to handle the hamsters how do you sedate the you know the basic things that you take for granted and but it's a lot of work
0: can you just tell our listeners a little bit um, why the hamster model for SARS? So people, some people may not be familiar with sort of the the, the need for the hamster model.
1: Right. So um, when when the when COVID hit, uh, there was not a lot of data available on what would be a good animal model to use. So initially, uh, a lot of work was done on the ferret model and and non-human primates because that seemed like the most obvious choice because. Influen they were they were taking uh, sort of help from work that was done with influenza with on SARS one because a lot of work was done on SARS one with those so they sort of just extrapolated from that but ferrets in general are not are they semi permissive models they're not uh, they're not the most susceptible model for SARS two um, and so. Uh, then, then there was some work uh, that showed uh, fairly early on in the pandemic in 2020. Uh, they came up with the hamster model as a good model, a susceptible host model, and a permissive model for SARS-CoV-2 replication, transmission, pathogenesis. Because ferrets don't get sick, they they do, they are with SARS-CoV-2, uh, but hamsters do. Like they lose weight, you know. You see a good clinical pathology, which is obviously was of interest and they are very good transmitters. They, they are very susceptible. So that's how the hamster model came into existence for SARS-CoV-2 um, and we were fortunate that it had already been established by the time we started our work. So we didn't have to sort of hunt around. Uh, we still had to do, I think a lot of um, uh, optimization to get it to work, right? Um, but yeah, so that's how we started with the hamster model. And the work we've been doing was to assess what what would be the effects of environmental conditions on transmission efficacy of SARS-CoV-2. And uh, some of the work would be um, more so um, if you could have non-pharmaceutical interventions in delaying transmission or abrogating transmission. That was the idea. Um, And uh, so we've we've been sort of, Assessing temperature, humidity, uh, dose of infection, the time at which of exposure, those sort of things, uh, more so to assess uh, transmission efficacy of SARS-CoV-2. So that's part of we've been devoting a lot of work on that for the past year and a half, uh, like a lot of people, I think. Um, so that was one big thing that we've been doing. The, very recently. The other thing like I was mentioning was the cell to sp- cell spread of influenza. And so we have, uh, I've basically have been working on uh, tunneling nanotubes. So tunneling nanotubes are um, cytoplasmic connections that form within cells. Uh, they are a mode of long distance communication. And they've been reported in a variety of different conditions under dif- with different cells. And uh, a lot of viruses use them for transport and, uh, and sort of infection mechanisms. Uh, with influenza, there's been some work to show that it does use it, but how it actually happens, the mechanism of transport and what are the implications of that was not explored in detail. So that was my sort of source of study. And so we we've, we've basically come down to we've identified a host factor that can be used to transport genomes from an infected cell to another and we've also shown because our lab works on reassortment we've shown the the sort of uh, effect of that mode of transmission on on reassortment and we see that it does have an effect and it does affect uh how much reassortment you get which is very interesting i think so in my, I would, uh, I'm at the sort of early stage of my career, and I'm planning to have my own lab. And that would be something I would be very interested in pursuing uh, to going forward, focusing on mechanisms and implications of these novel cell-to-cell spread mechanism.
0: For people that are not that familiar with it, what is, um, you know, just as far as, like, I guess myself, I think about cell-to-cell transmission and how basically then the virus may not be susceptible to normal modes of immune control. So is that partly what you're looking at? Or are there other aspects of what cell-to-cell spread might do or how it might impact the host? Or,
1: Yeah, so people have shown that this specifically this mode of TNT-based cell-to-cell spread is not affected by antivirals or neutralizing antibodies. So it does escape these sort of immune uh, mechanisms. Um, What we also think is, um, I think what what we are looking at specifically is more so spatially within a host, does it alter dynamics of within-host spread? And uh, does that then change uh, if, if because what we don't know mostly because we don't have an animal model for this hi, how do we look at it in vivo we don't have an in vivo mechanism uh, is what is how how frequently does this mode occur because in a normal infection you are going to get virus produced but how often does this mode of spread also occur in conjunction with that is some is a big question and does that affect within-host spread of of an infection, specifically with influenza? And I think my interest lies in more of the high-path influenza, where you're if is this more of a driver of spread uh, with high-path influenza is a question, uh, because you do get systemic spread of high-path influenza. So that is definitely a question. Uh, then the other thing I think we are foc- at least I would like to focus on, is potential differences between human viruses, seasonal viruses, and avian viruses, which are not well adapted to a human system. So does this method help to counteract that sort of host restriction? Uh, is it possible? So that is something where I'm going with it. Uh, we obviously don't have the answers. But uh, yeah, that is, that is where I'm uh, mostly focused on. The immune aspect of this is definitely interesting, because it's been shown that neutralizing antibodies don't affect it but we don't know whether the innate immune system plays a role and well, how much uh, of an, uh, an, an effect that would have.
0: I guess, uh, so your next thoughts are then to go into sort of an academic position. That's what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So the idea is to go into more of a tenure, uh, tenure track uh, faculty position. I do enjoy teaching, so Potentially something with a little more of a teaching component. I would, I would certainly enjoy. Uh, so yeah. So I'm starting. I'm hoping to start uh, looking for positions sometime late fall of this year.
0: Good luck. And then I guess just to finish off. So what has this past year or half year and a half in the pandemic been like for you as sort of a person? So obviously you talked about how your research had changed a little bit. What's it been like personally?
1: Personally, I think. Like with a lot of people, and I I, I, tweet, I, try to make this point with a lot of grad students too, uh, is that we think of ourselves as scientists first and people second, and that is not always a good thing because we tend to not understand that, yes, we've been working with this pandemic, especially people who are working with SARS and stuff, and we've been so invested in trying to get this, this research done and help in some way, that we forget we are living through the pandemic too. And that, I think we, we sort of put that on the back burner so often uh, with a lot of things, even regularly. And we don't take care of ourselves uh, mentally as much as we should. Uh, and I think it's changing now that people are more invested in trying to make sure that you have a good balance. Uh, for me, it was a little difficult and it has been difficult because I don't have any family here, it's just me. So, um, and I've not been able, like my parents haven't been able to visit. I haven't been able to go home to see them. I haven't been home to India in five years. So it's, it's sort of been this thing where you're just so focused on getting this done that you sort of forget about all of that. Yeah, and that's sort of been a little hard because I haven't gotten to see my friends. I haven't, there's no family. You don't have that support system. And I think you realize once you're you're forced to be alone like that uh, you realize how important that is to have a support system and have something to fall back on. Yeah so I've I've been trying to sort of focus more on generating a better work-life balance where I do take time for myself to do something that is not science which is very hard to do (laughs) especially I think also, I tell a lot of prospective grad students, people who are thinking about research, is that don't think of this as a job. If you, It's not. You really do have to invest a lot of yourself into it. And that's the only way you'll enjoy it. Because nine times out of 10, things don't work. It can be very frustrating when things don't work. And um, most of the times, things don't go the way you think they will. And then you're just, you have to change on the fly. Um, but... You should love this work and I think that's what helps help me sort of maintain this like moving three continents, you know, moving multiple places is because I love the work and you should love the work. Don't do it if you don't love it. It's not for everybody. Um, so yeah, I, I think but je- having uh, having a time for yourself, whatever it might be, have a hobby do something that is not science-related. It, it's very important, I feel, to be better productive at, at, in the lab, too. I think it helps me. It helps me be more productive when I'm not thinking constantly about it.
0: Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. on. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Melissa <laughs> Backright. <and> thanks for listening. <laughs>